Hello, and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. How are you doing? Um, I'm really happy that I have a voice because I, it may go out a little bit, but it's pretty okay right now. Um, I had I, I recorded last episode, which was around New Year's Eve, and then immediately got sick, and I've been... I've been sick ever since, more or less, on and off, or at least in different degrees of awful, uh, and I'm feeling better. But I did see some movies, I saw multiple movies in theaters, even though I've been sick, and uh, and I will talk about, I will address several, but I'm going to focus on The Turning, which just came out this weekend. Um, so you know the deal, if you don't know the deal, uh, basically what I'll do is non-spoilers, which are kind of the things I would tell a friend who is about to go see the movie without any spoilers. Uh, and then I will ring a physical bell, which sounds like this. Uh, and then I will switch to spoilers. And spoilers will be uh, what I would say to someone after we just came out of the movie, or things I would say to someone who's seen the movie who I want to talk about the movie with. So that'll be full spoilers, and I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll give my interpretation of the movie. I also will, if you're someone who watched the movie and your reaction was, what the hell happened? I'm going to, um, I'm not totally for prescriptive close reading of a movie by plot, but I will give, I will give you something to hold on to. <laughs> if you really want uh, to have some sort of more uh, narratively sound, linear, logical plot, I will give you an option. Uh, and I'll also give you a lot of my kind of interpretation reaction to specific parts of the movie, which I think are great. Um, heads up, if you didn't, if you don't read the internet, the reviews for this movie are not universally great, uh, but I really liked it. And so this is actually, I, I wasn't necessarily sure what movie I would do next, but just because I liked this movie and I find that so many of the critical reviews for this movie are rather uh, frustrating to me. Um, I wanted to just weigh, weigh in with my two cents um, and tell you what, why I liked it, because I did. Um, here's some things. The first thing I want to talk about, and this this will connect to some of these other movies that I saw. Um, I've noticed on Twitter and the internet that there's a lot of reference to January horror movies. Uh, this sort of concept that January is a dumping ground graveyard for sort of half alive, you know, long gestating horror movies that are by some presumption not very good. Uh, and, and I've also seen pushback to the effect of, you know, like, by what logic can you just count a movie based upon its month of release? And just because a movie comes out any particular part of the year, it doesn't mean that it's not any good. Um, and I think that that is worth, that is a position worth noting. Um, there's been lots of great horror movies at all parts of the year. There's been lots of surprises. Horror movies, by and large, are really great counter-programming to blockbusters. So you will see lots of horror movies open up all times of the year. Uh, if there's an open release date, like at an odd weekend, often what will get put there in a non-competitive slot is a horror movie. Maybe not because it's bad, but just because it costs $5 million and it's not a very strong weekend overall at the box office, a movie that was inexpensive might thrive. And it only needs to make back a certain amount to profit, which is much lower than an average blockbuster, which needs to make hundreds of millions or sometimes a billion dollars uh, to really be considered a success. Um, so horror movies, they happen all times of year, and I don't know, I also, I would, I would agree with the, the fact that we shouldn't um, diminish a movie based upon release date. Uh, I think some of this comes from, there's a really infamous 
a horror movie called The Devil Inside. I think that's right. There's a lot of movies with that start with The Devil. Um, shout out to The Devil's Doorway, directed by Ashley and Clark, by the way. It's a great movie. Um, but there's a lot of movies that start with The Devil. So I think it's The Devil Inside. It's that one that had that trailer with the woman who had drawn a crucifix into her lip. And she kept saying, connect the cuts, connect the cuts. Remember that? Does anyone remember that? It was, it sounds like Connecticut, which I thought was really weird when I saw that trailer. Uh, connect the cuts, connect the cuts. Anyway, um, I, that movie came out very famously the first week in January. I don't remember what year. I'm not that good. Uh, and it was, it was, it was really successful. And it made like $40 million the first weekend. It was a huge box office success. And the parent, and I've never seen the movie. I've actually never seen it. But what I was told was that it is about 70 minutes in length, uh, which is on the short side. Uh, it ends very abruptly, and it the end scene cuts really fast to a title that directs you to a website to read more information. And people, <laughs> people's anger was just inflamed by this directive to go to a website to read more information, as though the movie itself couldn't address the scope of the plot. I feel like that has been an enduring negative association with January. Um, but there have been, you know, last year, the first horror movie released in wide release in theaters last year was Escape Room, which I think is a really fun movie. And I would really recommend if you haven't seen, if you like high concept horror movies like Final Destination, or those kinds of movies where there's a setup that pays off, you know, sort of cyclically. Some people don't like that kind of structure, where it's just kind of like setting up a premise and paying it off. But if you like that, um, which I kind of do, I also really like that movie Truth or Dare, which is a completely ridiculous premise, but I thought was really fun. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen that, I actually recommend Truth or Dare. I think Truth or Dare is really fun. I also think Escape Room is really fun and has... I think across the board, really good performances um, by people like Deborah Ann Wall. Anyway, that came out last January, around January 4th, and it was really solid. It did really, really well, and there will be a sequel. So it's not the month. So let's just, let's just let go of the month of January, or the negative feeling about the month of January. But what I will say, and this is not founded in a sense of like uh, uh, negative, uh, negative association, what I will say might be true, a little bit, is just that January is a time, really for all genres, where some movies come out that maybe studios don't appreciate or don't understand or don't know how to market. Uh, and partly that's because it's a relatively low box office month and the competition is not typically as strong in January. So if you don't believe in a movie, you might put it out in January. But a studio not believing in a movie is not the same as a movie being bad or not valuable. And I think that's really important because studios have notoriously not valued or thought very little of movies that have gone on to be classic movies. Um, I'm not saying that, <laughs> that any of these movies are classic movies or anything like that, but I, I don't think that uh, a financial decision bears much in terms of the quality of the movie. But what it does, what it does create, and this is where, what I want to get to, is I've seen three horror movies that came out in the month of January. Uh, the, the Grudge, which was the first uh, that came out this year. Underwater, which came out second, the 10th of January. And then The Turning, which just came out this past weekend, the 24th. 
Uh, and I think all three, I don't know this, and I will never assert this for, for fact, because I don't know it as a fact, but all three seem to me to be movies that there were some modifications made after the fact, um, perhaps with or without the approval of the director. Um, and there are just some things. If you, if you watch lots of movies, there are some things that jump out, like where you just feel like, oh, that clearly was not shot at the same time. Like, uh, ADR is a big one. So you can catch ADR dialogue a lot. Um, if there's someone saying a line and their face isn't on screen and their mouth isn't moving, it probably wasn't recorded on the set. It's probably added in post-production. And when there's a very heavy-handed line of dialogue that over-explains what you just saw and you don't see the person who says it on screen moving a mouth... 99% of the time, that is, we got a note from this test screening. It says that they're confused about who is who and whose sister is whose and what's going on in the story. Let's just loop in a line of dialogue where someone lays it all out <laughs> really just too clearly. Um, and and you could you could see that you could see that in this movie. I'll I'll point out where I think it happens, unfortunately. Um, and, and, and there, there are certainly other techniques than ADR dialogue. Like, so, um, Underwater, Underwater, I think, I think it plays well. I really liked Underwater, the Kristen Stewart, uh, alien under, underwater alien movie, I guess you would say, how you would describe it. It's a really great thriller. It's really fast. It kind of explodes right away and then it just sort of takes off running and has some really great, uh, suspenseful moments. And I, I love Kristen Stewart. I feel like she's the... I feel like she's, like, the foremost artist of American masculinity in the year 2020. Like, I feel like, I feel like I'm more interested in Kristen Stewart's uh, interpretation of screen masculinity than any man acting performer. Um, she's, like, she's, like, my kind of new millennium James Dean in my heart. Uh, she's so great. She's, it's like, James Dean, Marlon Brando, Kristen Stewart. Fight me. Um, but, but I think she's great in the movie. It has shades of alien, but it sort of is its own, has shades of Cloverfield, it, it, but it's, it's, it's good. It's enjoyable. Um, but for sure, I think the movie plays solid. I don't think it was tampered with, but there is a crazy heavy handed newspaper scroll <laughs> that opens and concludes the movie where it's, it's I don't know why studios do this. It's so, maybe people don't notice it. I think most people do though. It's just, it's just gawky and awkward. You know, there's just, uh, there's just newspaper clippings at the end that say, that basically sum up every small, you know, it's very obvious what happens at the end of the movie and I won't spoil it, but it's very obvious what happens. It sets up what it's doing very clearly but there's still a compulsive need to, to address the any sense of audience, uh, you know, questioning of what happened. Any if anything is unclear, what well, we have to put ADR, we have to we have to put in dialogue, we have to add like a you know a title at the end of the movie that addresses audience confusion. So at the end of Underwater, there's this like newspaper that explains exactly what happened and where everyone ended up. Which is unnecessary, and I think really strongly feels like it wasn't part of the original movie, and and it's it, it's just it's a bummer. It doesn't have to be there. It doesn't hurt the movie because it's not. It's you know it's at the beginning at the end, so it doesn't really it doesn't appear on screen in the movie, um, or sorry, it doesn't appear kind of in the bounds of the the narrative of the movie. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really intrude as much because it's beginning and ending. 
But the grudge, I you can't tell me that someone didn't edit the grudge like five times. Like there were, you can't tell me that there was not a ton of cuts to that movie, or that there were not decisions made because of test screenings which were not creatively driven. Uh, there's so much explanation in the grudge. There's on-screen titles explaining what's happening. There's like a crazy detailed, like so redundant montage near the end near the end of the movie <laughs> near the end of the movie we see the entire movie again in flashbacks like it's such a strange montage uh that like it you can basically you could practically hear someone saying oh yeah no it came back the audience doesn't understand it you need to like uh you know put in like a bunch of scenes again so that they can catch up before we get to the last shot <laughs> Uh, I liked things about The Grudge. I would love to see a director's cut of The Grudge. I really like Nicholas Pesh. I think uh, I think The Eyes of My Mother is great. I think and it's it surprises me that The Grudge is so um, disjointed, just because I feel like his other films are really good. The Eyes of My Mother is so good. The scares are so on point. It's very scary. It's very stylish. It looks cool, um, and it it is it is it's really affecting. Uh, and Piercing, his second movie, which is not like a tried and true horror movie, but definitely is a genre movie, uh, is also, I mean, they're, they're very unusual and they're kind of experimental, which again is why I suspect maybe there was some editing done against his wishes on The Grudge. Uh, but they're unusual and they're unconventional, but they're really good, uh, both of those movies. So the fact that The Grudge, uh, I feel like The Grudge plays like someone made, uh, Nicholas Pesh, someone is Nicholas Pesh in this case, a director made uh, probably a more an experimental version of a movie, a, a franchise movie, than they wanted. And then they kind of tried to reel it in and put together a more conventional cut of the movie that they could sell. And yes, maybe because January is less competitive, they put it out at that date because they did not believe in the movie because audience test screenings didn't bode well for the movie. Uh, and all of that's really unfortunate. The, the fact that any movie is altered against the wishes of a filmmaker because of test screenings, which, again, I have no proof that this was done, but it seems really strongly like it was to me. Uh, it just sucks. I and mean, the director's commentary of Bad Santa, the Terry Zweigoff movie with Billy Bob Thornton, is a really interesting artifact of this. Terry Zweigoff, who directed Ghost World, um, which is one of my favorite movies with Thor Birch and very, a very young Scarlett Johansson and Ileana Douglas. It's a great movie. Um, but Terry Zweigoff talks about, you know, he had not made a lot of studio movies, or maybe he had never made any studio movies at the time he took the Bad Santa job. And his director's cut commentary is, I mean, just basically like scene for scene him bemoaning... <laughs> <laughs> bemoaning all of the changes that they made him um, execute in the in the final cut of the movie because of test results that you know the movie opens with Billy Bob Thornton dressed as Santa at a bar and it's obviously visually telling us that this is like a sad character it's it's a, it's unusual to see Santa at a bar it's funny to see Santa at a bar and it's certainly not a happy Santa um, and but in the final cut, they made Billy Bob Thornton record a voiceover where he explains he's unhappy, right? So there's all these kinds of things where there was just so much that was forced to be changed. And so if you're interested in, in hearing a filmmaker talk about those kinds of uh, the pressures of that and 
the fact that what had to have been changed or the kinds of changes that get made, uh, I would direct you to the director's commentary for uh, Bad Santa because uh, Terry Zwagov kind of lays it out. It's clearly someone, by the way, who didn't like working for a studio and probably won't ever work for a studio ever again because uh, he really lays it out, like everything that he hated about the test screening process. Anyway, um, so The Grudge is, I think, a missed opportunity. I'd love to see a director's cut. I'd love to know what it was originally supposed to look like. I believe it probably got tampered with. Underwater is really solid. The turning is 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 very solid. And, and uh, he, here's what I'll say. So uh, a couple of things. Um, here's the most important thing, I think, to know. And I don't think this spoils anything, really. It maybe it addresses the tone and the style of the movie, but it doesn't tell you what happens in the movie. Uh, but it, it, for, for sure, you must be interested in watching a movie that is a thematically driven movie that is not the most linear narrative movie, right? So for as much as this is a kind of conventional haunted house story and as much of, as The Turn of the Screw is a classic kind of haunted house novel, the the novel and its many film adaptations, most especially The Innocence, directed by Jack Clayton, um, starring Deborah Carr, which is so good. If you have not seen The Innocence, you ha just 100% watch it. Uh, but all of its adaptations have been engaged with questions of sanity and reality that is it is it is an essential part of that story it is a thematically important part of that story to to make a version of, of this story that doesn't address that fact is would be uh would be irresponsible and and also would be really disingenuous it would be a really harsh compromise so i'm personally just really happy that the turning engages with and builds upon the those conversations about this story just it like full tilt commits to that problem or question uh you know and if you don't know uh the turn of the screw is written by henry james and it's a novel that is on the surface seemingly about a woman who becomes a governess of this very rich family's at this very rich family's estate of two children. And she is told by the, the, the woman who kind of runs the, the property uh, that these two children uh, are, or have been, or had been very close with the prior governess and um, the like stable keep, or what, what's, what's the noun for someone who, horse trainer? I don't know. <laughs> stable boy is that is that do we say that i don't know stable person that sounds wrong um but the person who tended the stables uh miss jessel is the is the former governess and quint is the <laughs> the horse guy um and and also she's told this story about how they had according to the woman who kind of tends the the, the property that uh, they had had a sexual relationship and that perhaps the children were aware of this. And uh, the governess, the new governess, uh, starts to suspect the children are being possessed by the ghosts of these now dead characters, Quint and Jessel, who are possibly kind of like trying to reach each other in the afterlife through these small children. 
what it's been often read as is a story about kind of puritanical sexual paranoia that this is you know that the the governor's character is so scandalized by the idea that these young children would have been exposed to the knowledge of sexuality that she starts to project onto them the fear that they are manifesting behaviors that descend from this you know potentially harmful exposure to the knowledge of sexuality at a young age um, and she she becomes convinced that there are ghosts and the children are being possessed and and she needs to save them and perhaps in trying to save them hurts them uh, there is a way in which you can read the novel at face value and say it's a ghost story and there are ghosts and that's what happens but I think most people uh, really clearly treat the story as being one about this kind of kind of puritanical sexual policing of the knowledge of sexuality or this projection or this fear about the knowledge of sexuality amongst children um so so that's you know that's subtext the, the innocence which is the jack clayton's jack clayton movie kind of takes the 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 same approach as the novel the novel does which is that it presents a ghost story that also has this kind of double meaning at its core. So you could watch the movie like, like it's a ghost story at face value, or you could certainly still kind of read into some of the, the sort of double meaning of the story. Uh, I think it's interesting when this, when this novel gets made into movies, which it often does, including TV movies and things, some I haven't seen, uh, there's one, by the way, there's one with Ingrid Bergman that aired on TV in the 50s. I've never seen, but I've always wanted to see, and I can never get a copy of. But there's a version where Ingrid Bergman does The Turn of the Screw, which sounds amazing. And I think, oh, I think it's directed by, like, um, oh, who was it? It was someone really cool. Um, oh, I think it was directed by John Frankenheimer who directed Manchurian Candidate in Seconds. I think that's what it was. It sounds great. I don't <laughs> I wish I could see it. Anyway, I think that exists in the world, but there's been a bunch of versions. Um, most of them engage with this in, in some way, but also there's this question with, um, when you're doing a novel, right, you can describe a character seeing a ghost and you can kind of locate the perspective of that in the character. But when you're making a movie, you kind of have to choose whether or not you want to show the ghost or not. And it's interesting because there's always an innate question about if you show the ghost, do you give extra credence to the perspective of the ghost? You know, like how do you balance between showing what the character is seeing and maybe over-validating what the character sees as reality? It's an interesting question that's not really in the novel process, which I thought was, uh, I've always thought it's interesting that you, you have to make a choice in filmmaking as to what we see, whereas in a novel you can describe something and give the reader the power to interpret it. Um, but anyway, what I, what I will just say in terms of people's dissatisfaction or confusion with the movie is that it is not just subtly invested in that question of is you know is this a sincere haunting or is this a manifestation of a character's paranoia or delusion um, it is really essentially <laughs> it is really essentially about that thing and it cinematically and formally addresses that. Uh, in a way that, that The Innocence does not and that most film adaptations I've seen of this story do not. 
Uh, and I really like that. And I will go into detail about why I like that uh, and <laughs> in the second half of this review. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I just want to say a few quick things in the non-spoiler that I think are are interesting and worth knowing uh, and that speak to the appeal of the movie without giving away the plot of the movie. The first is that this movie is, I don't know why, uh, I, I actually ha I haven't read any interviews. I'd be curious, I might after this actually. I might after the fact. <laughs> I might after I talked about it for an hour. I think I think now would be a good time after I've done that to look up um, some interviews <laughs> where I might, uh, I'm curious why it's set in the 90s. So I didn't know this until very quickly before I saw the movie. I, I had overseen something, I over, oversaw? I saw something, there you go. I saw something on Twitter uh, that alluded to it being set in the 90s, which is not necessarily clear from the ads, although I don't watch trailers, so I close my eyes. But it's set in the 90s, which for me, and for, I think for other people, is really an attractive quality. Um, I remember being in college when we talked about, we were talking about nostalgia in a course about screenwriting, and someone was talking about 80s nostalgia, and then the professor said, yeah, I mean, what are we going to have next, 90s nostalgia? And it turned out, by the way, this was uh, like 12 years ago or 10 years ago, but it turned out that I think just that same year, The Dopeness, which was one of the first high-profile period 90s movies uh, with Josh Peck and Ben Kingsley had premiered at either Sundance or TIFF or something, I don't remember. Uh, so 90s nostalgia was happening then, uh, but certainly it's happening now. Um, I don't know the rationale for setting it in the 90s, but I love it. I mean, as a, as a child of the 90s, first of all, I mean, there's a moment early in the movie where where there's like a smash cut to the main character, who's played by Mackenzie Davis, who's amazing. Uh, Mackenzie Davis, who's just like walking down a hallway, and it, like there's a hard smash cut to her shoes on a red carpet, and she's wearing Doc Martens. It's so, it's so, it's such a, it's so great. It's very nostalgic. She's also wearing lots of like strappy dresses over long sleeve shirts, like Willow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's so, it's such a great like the hair and the clothes and all of that is great. The '90sness of it appeals to me. It might to you. It might not. Uh, but I wanted to put that out there. Uh, it's set in the 90s, so if you like 90s aesthetics, you will be set. Uh, and also, too, there's uh, the soundtrack is amazing. The soundtrack is, I think, all or mostly original songs by really great artists who are doing a kind of, you know, a not like a not like a cheesy pastiche, but like a really kind of fun, obvious sort of homage to the style of 90s alt-rock music. So, like, all the 90s horror movies, like Scream, all had, like, alt-rock soundtracks that you could buy in, at The Wiz. Uh, <laughs> like, you could buy, there'd be, like, original songs on them uh, that were just for the movie. Uh, and, and like, every horror movie in the late 90s had, like, a, an alt-rock soundtrack that went with it. And so the fact that this movie has that, and, and the fact that it has, like, a new song by Courtney Love on it, and then it has a song by a new song by Mitski on it. Mitski, if you've not listened to her, she's amazing. Uh, it's it's awesome. The songs are used well in the movie, but also separately in and of themselves. Like the soundtrack is great. So it looks like a '90s movie. It sounds like a '90s movie. So if you are a nostalgic horror fan of the '90s, uh, 
I think this shit is great. And you should you should definitely go see the movie. Uh, it's not it's not the only reason to see the movie, but I'm putting it out there because I don't think that's as obvious in the the print materials. Although I'll give away one moment that feels like it was probably added in post, but there's an early moment in the movie. It's clear the '90s because of the fashion and the clothing, and because uh, you know there's a, a poster of uh, Kurt Cobain on the wall. Um, but there's a moment early in the movie where the camera cuts to a TV reporting that Kurt Cobain has died, which just seems like it is. It seems like someone was like, oh, we need to make this clearer. It's the 90s. Put in some sort of reference to the date. And it's sort of after the fact. And it's like, the movie shows us that it's the 90s. We don't, we don't, we don't need someone to narrate it. But I digress. Um, so the movie's really interesting. It plays with sanity and reality. It engages with the text of the book in a really interesting way. It is perhaps more thematically driven than it is narratively satisfying. If that bothers you, that's a heads up to be aware of that. But if that bothers you, rethink your attachment. <laughs> rethink your attachment to stringent narrative closure. Because I feel like engaging with something that is a bit more abstract in ways is exciting and can be just as satisfying. Uh, it's just a small piece of advice. I mean, you do you, but I, I, I would advocate to try. And it's set in the 90s. And it is visually cool for those reasons. And there's a cool soundtrack. Those are the non-spoiler things I have to say. I'm going to ring a bell. And I'm going to switch to spoilers. Okay, I'm going to start spoilers with one the, the, one, the one thing I really didn't like. <laughs> I'm going to just, just, you know, I have a lot of great things to say. So I'm going to say this one thing, and um, and also it's also not something that is really about this movie. It's just something about modern horror movies that, that I want to say. Uh, and, and it does relate to my love of Jack Clayton's The Innocents. I feel uh, a little bit frustrated, a tiny bit frustrated. Uh, I really, I, I miss, I miss, even though I wasn't alive, I somehow still miss this time where you could make like a 100 minute movie that has about three to five scares in it um you know the climax of robert wise's the haunting if you have not seen that by the way i highly recommend 1963 um robert wise the, the climax of robert wise's the haunting adapted from the shirley jackson novel which also recently became the netflix series the haunting of hill house uh is a close-up of a door that appears to be vibrating that's the that's the <laughs> that's the most you know outrageous visual moment of the movie and because it, it builds suspense so effectively the the image of this door you know po you know possibly being moved by some unseen force is itself so affecting Jack Clayton's The Innocence, which is one of my favorite, if not my favorite horror movie. I've said this before in this on this podcast. There are like three scares in the movie, right? Maybe four or five if you count small scares, you know, small moments. Uh, you know, there but there's like three really crucial ones that are exquisite. And there is the space and the freedom 
to just have that many. And there's an expectation that an audience can sit for 20 minutes and watch characters develop and learn about the character relationships and you don't have to have a scary ghost woman jump out of a closet. And I, 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 I miss that pacing. I miss deliberate pacing. I was trying to think recently, and I don't know that I have an answer, and I probably could do better research, but I was trying to think, like, what was the last studio-distributed, not independent art house A24-style horror movie that was completely atmospheric and character-driven? Where there wasn't a sort of ooga-booga, obvious scare, you know, early in the... Too early in the movie. Um, where there wasn't, like... There didn't need to be a compulsive scare that had nothing to do with the story that wasn't organic to the story. And honestly, it's hard when you're thinking about mainstream wide-release movies. I think Jordan Peele's movies don't have that. I think they, you know, they build tension in other ways. Like, you know, the fact that Get Out opens with a car collision which is upsetting and off-putting and it opens with an instance of police racism which is you know upsetting and off-putting i think jordan peele is an exception but i feel like most horror movies and by the way i'm not i'm actually really not blaming filmmakers for this my guess is that filmmakers don't want to do this and that this is a directive i mean for example i really liked the andy muschetti it movie um chapter one chapter two not so much to be honest but chapter one I really liked, but and I love so I love everything about that movie except the really cheesy CGI Pennywise like shaking running toward the camera that that look visually silly. It looks silly. It's not character driven. It doesn't to my taste doesn't connect to the tone of the movie. Um, <clears throat> What I like about It Chapter One is that it is really a surreal coming-of-age film where the supernatural is just an extension of the problems that all of those kids are facing. When you do a scary, you know, scary monster running at the camera really fast, uh, and it's clearly CGI and it looks artificial, I mean, it looks... It, it looks kind of like a video game. It, it's not scary, and it takes you out of the movie, and I just don't want it to be there. And I, and I think you can just have a long stretch of time, and you can just let there not be a scare. They don't, they don't have to come constantly, incessantly. I, I think this is a thing that is just generally a problem in terms of my personal taste and what I want from horror movies. Scares in horror movies are like musical numbers in a musical if everyone's just singing because it's not a very good musical the reason to have a musical number in a musical is to learn something about the character to progress the story or to address a thematic element of the plot if it's just happening because it has to happen because there hasn't been a song in 25 minutes and this is a musical it's not going to be an exciting number. Uh, you know, this this sort of like systemic pressure to deliver on the genre of the movie so incessantly uh, that there must be a scare every 10 minutes. There must be a scare every 10 minutes in a horror movie, a laugh every 10 minutes in a comedy, uh, you know, a song every 15 or 20 minutes in a musical. Just chill out and like let let things happen. 
Uh, you know, Jack Clayton's The Innocence is a horror masterpiece in my mind, and there are legit three scares. <laughs> there are legit three scares, and they're subtle, and they're beautiful, and they're technically very impressive. Uh, there's a the the sort of quintessential mid movie scare in The Innocence. I don't think it ruins it to describe it because it's not about what it is; it's about how it feels when you watch it. It is the face of Quint slowly moving toward a window with Deborah Carr as the governess standing in the window with a candle. Uh, uh, this, by the way, the novel was written in the late uh, 19th century. So uh, the uh, many adaptations are period specific to that time. So she's holding a candle and she's sort of hiding behind a curtain. And in the window behind her, she doesn't see it. But we see the face of Quint slowly push toward the window. And so there's a couple of things about that that are brilliant. One is that in order to achieve the effect, you have to have deep focus, which means that the foreground, the background have to both be in focus at the same time, because we need to be able to see her reaction, her face, and we need to be able to see what's behind her that she doesn't see. That's awesome. Uh, but also in order to make the face coming toward the window feel unnatural they sat the actor on like a crane and they dollied him in toward the window so just his face moved and the face didn't move with the physicality of a body taking steps it's a totally naturally achieved eerie physical movement that's accomplished through cinematography and performance and staging that's what I want. <laughs> That's what I want from my horror movies. Uh, personally, my taste, I know taste is different. But what I didn't love here and I don't like generally is when there's just like a CGI ghost that just pops up because it's time for one. Uh, and I think in this one, in this movie, there's just like a... Again, because the story is not like a rollicking scare. It's the the story doesn't lend itself to to a scare every ten minutes. It's not that kind of story. Uh, but there's just like a compulsive need to throw that in, and there's like a very, I think, mistimed one early in the movie where uh, the governor's here is called Kate, uh, played by Mackenzie Davis, where she shuts the window in this old house, and there's just a. There's a full-body apparition of a screaming woman in the window. And then she doesn't comment on it. She doesn't comment on it. Flora, the little girl, doesn't comment on it. No one comments on it. And you just think... There's a few things. I mean, one is you think, um, okay, did no one did no one else see the full-body apparition of the screaming woman? Did no one tell the actress to react? Was it going to be more subtle? And then there was pressure to make it scarier? I don't know. If there's a full-body screaming apparition, I think people should probably have a big... It just it doesn't go it doesn't go with what's happening in the movie. It doesn't build the character dynamics. It doesn't it also doesn't pace itself well. Like I feel strongly that you if you're going to do a movie that is a slow escalation movie where it starts out being like, you know, some odd noises like a in the distance and then end with the full body screaming apparition we should not have a screaming full body apparition 15 minutes into the movie like you have to start with and then build your way up 
and I just, I, I don't know. It, it strikes me as, like, no one trusted that the audience could sit that long without something jumping out at them. And I know that there is an audience that wants to this kind of, you know, to me, that's the visual, that's the cinematic equivalent of, like, those YouTube videos that you pl press play and they're like a joke video where it says, you know, stare at the chair because you'll never believe what happens. And then you stare at the chair and then, like, three minutes in, there's just, like, a giant screaming ghost woman that... There's, there's like a smash cut to a screaming loud ghost woman and it has nothing to do with the image of the chair it's just that it's just to trick you into looking at something intensely and then to surprise you that's what that feels like because it's not about any it's not about what's in the frame it's not about what we've been looking at for the last three minutes it's just about the th something jumping out at you that's not my favorite part I, i'm just gonna put that out there <laughs> I do think, by the way, there are much better scares. There are some scares. There, there, there are. Mo there, there's moments that are brilliant. There are, there are moments where nothing is ghosty in the frame, and it's still scary. Um, there's a shot. There's a, the most beautiful shot in the whole movie. I think there's a shot in uh, like midway in the movie. It's after Kate has been tricked into jumping into the pool. Which, by the way, do we need? Do we? Okay. Her, the idea of a small child drowning is scary. Here's the, here's here's what the idea of a small child drowning is scary. The idea of uh, a woman jumping into the a, a pool, you know, that's that's deep is it's scary. It's intense. The revelation that it was a doll, it you know, it's it 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 is surprising. It's an interesting scene. The fact that the children are terrorizing her, it's an interesting scene. You know, we don't need. We don't need you to make a CGI woman come alive and grab her underwater. Like, we don't need it. We don't need it. We don't need it. We don't need it. It's scary. It is scary. But the shot that I really love and I think is just so captivating is there's a shot a little bit later when things are really starting to get a little bit darker and the camera, it's a shot of the pool and we see these like shards of broken doll faces, which by the way, flashback to... Uh, whole live through this doll parts. Um, by the way, if you don't know, Floria Sigismundi, who directed this, by the way, is the who is a director of many iconic nineteen nineties music videos, including Marilyn Manson, Beautiful People. So she's like one of the architects of nineties uh, goth pop culture. <laughs> anyway, so there's a shot of uh, of the camera in the pool showing these broken doll faces and then it just sort of tracks across the pool and it finds Kate looking kind of terrified drinking tea and then it pans from Kate up to this sculpture this of a woman that overlooks the pool and it sort of ends close on the sculpture's face with a, a fractured broken nose that's been chipped off from time and wear and it, it is it's a beautiful shot and it's captivating visually and there's nothing silly happening and it just conveys the sense of terror and brokenness and vulnerability and we are with her like we're so with her and I want to be with her I don't want I don't want silly ghosty things like leaping out of the closets all the time you know uh and and so that moment's great. The my number one hands down favorite scare in this movie. There's a moment. So um, I want to get to the way this rewrites some of the novel in, in which I think is brilliant. I think there's. I don't want to reiterate. I know I've said several minutes worth of critique. There's brilliant shit in this movie, and I'm going to get to it in a second. Um, 
but uh, my, my my favorite scare is that l- later in the movie, once the idea has been laid that it really is not just a sexual relationship that's in the past of this house, but a an abusive sexual relationship, um, you know, and a, a possibly involving a rape, which is very serious and awful. Um, there is a moment where Kate is alone in her room and she's processing this information and the way that the ghost manifests is hands running up her shoulders and grabbing hold of her and every time she knocks one away, another one comes up and springs up and grabs her and she knocks it away. The reason why this is brilliant, first of all, visually it looks, it doesn't look like a kind of silly like thing that jumps out at you. It is, it is built into the scene. It's a part of what she, her physicality in the space of the room. It's about her. It's not about something else that's just you know, uh, leaping out at her. It it is in, it is really tied or connected to her, and it is also metaphorically and thematically, it's an extension of her feeling because the the entire scene is that she feels unsafe. She feels like she's in a space where. Um, there was there was sexual violence. She worries. She there's a young girl in this house. She feels uncomfortable. She she feels terrorized by Miles, who in this version of the movie is a teenager and older, and has come into her room at night. And the the idea of having hands all over you as a manifestation of a supernatural threat of sexual violence is visually interesting. It's thematically relevant, and it connects us to her as a character. It is so good. That whole scene of her in the bedroom uh, is so good. And then Flora comes in and then says, I'll sleep with you. And they get into bed, and she holds the little girl in the bed with her. That, that is a gorgeous scene, and it's worth seeing in the movie for that. It is unlike most horror movies that I see to have a scene like this. It is... It is, to me, a really high point in in what horror can do because it is about something that is very real and very visceral, but it manifests supernaturally. Okay, I want to talk about, because I have mentioned it and it's becoming harder to talk about the movie without talking about it, I want to talk about the reconstruction or, or alteration of, of the basic plot or premise of the story. Um, so as I mentioned, this was originally set in 19th century, Late 19th century. Uh, By the way, there is, as queer things go, because this is um, a queer horror podcast, uh, there's a great chapter. Jonathan Flatley has a book called Affective Mapping, which granted, if you're not an academic type person who wants to read academic books, maybe would be a little bit dense. But if you're interested, I, I think it's worth reading. He has a great chapter on The Turn of the Screw. And he, and that one one thing that's fairly easy to pull out of that is that uh, he really talks about the fact that The Turn of the Screw was published very shortly after the Oscar Wilde trial. So Oscar Wilde, if you don't know, a very famous gay playwright, um, was uh, convicted of indecency. Uh, his trial it was a like scandalous kind of tabloid affair, um, and it was... Uh, it was incredibly uh, invasive. It you know it was a it was a gay man who was being kind of paraded in front of his peers, being you know degraded, uh, tr- you know 
investigated for her sexual history. Uh, there's like stuff, you know, I mean, there's testimony about the stains on his bed sheets. Like it like aired out all of his whole private sexual life. And, uh, and, and this was, this happened in the, in like 1895, I think. And the book was published in 1898. I believe that's right. Uh, and so this was, it's a very close, it's a very short window of time. And, and so he argues that one of the things that this book really touched on was, uh, what, um, if you, if you're familiar with any Michel Foucault, uh, Foucault is a, a you know a kind of theorist of, of many things, including sexuality, especially queer sexuality. Uh, but if you're familiar with Michel Foucault a little bit, he talks in his writing about the will to know, and this idea that a driving kind of catalyst of the invasion of of, of queer lives or queer privacies is the that people just want to know. They want to know what you, what you do in bed. They want to know your sexuality and that uh, that. Queer people, in particular, because their sexuality is not the normative, uh, kind of it's not normative sexuality or or you know conventional heterosexual sexuality, that that there's this like really deep seated desire to know, and that that investigative impulse drives a lot of how we structure our thinking about sex, or how se- the thinking about sex has, has been structured historically. Uh, so at any rate, so that chapter really kind of lays this very great kind of queer theoretical perspective for how the turn of the screw is already about this kind of invasive questioning of sexuality that the governess in the novel is obsessed with knowing you know if sex happened here and what it was like and and, you know and what and, and she's she's sort of obsessively seeking out some kind of perversion because she 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 insists it must be there and she starts to project this onto the children, and then she, so from there we cycle out into the kind of neurosis that drives the novel. Um, that's all fascinating, and I'm. <laughs> it's a I mean, it's a great book. If you haven't read the book, it's not very long. It's worth reading. Uh, this story, this version of the story, is a little different, and the big difference for me is Miles. I think one hundred percent home run, great choice. Whoever made this decision, like. High five. Um, <laughs> the choice to age Miles from being a child to a kind of a teenager uh, is... It affects so dramatically so much about the story, and it makes that story much more contemporary. A few reasons why. So in the book and in The Innocence, the movie, the most famous movie version... Uh, there is a scene where Miles kisses the governess and it is, you know, it is like an innocent kiss goodnight that like lingers too long and she becomes convinced that she sees Quint in his eyes and that Quint has possessed him and get, like imbued him with a sexual desire. Uh, it's really, it was really difficult to film in the 60s movie because you had to have a child actor of, I don't know... Of, of what age, I'm not totally sure, but a young age, uh, perform a sort of romantic kiss with an adult actor. Uh, and it is sort of like achieved by having an innocuous kiss goodnight that seems, ex- like just sort of seems to stay still a little bit too long. And then a sort of exchange of glances where 
the perform the actor who plays Miles is kind of probably coached to seem a little bit too knowing in his glanced back at her. Uh, but it has to be kind of achieved visually in a way that is not, obviously not exploiting the actor. In this version, the idea of Miles kind of having sexuality seems, you know, obvious. Um, like, 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 speaking truly as a sissy who went to an all-boys Catholic high school, like, teenage boys are gross. Um, <laughs> like, there is a kind of innate uh, physicality about teenage boys that is, that is sort of, like, indisputably gross. Um, you know, this is, it's like, it's like a weird age where... Um, and this is speaking from experience. This is like a weird age, not of things I did, but things I witnessed. Uh, but like this is a weird age where people are like, where boys, like teach boys are just sort of, I, um, I, I was just about to say they're, they're, they're meant like they're practically peeing on the walls. But then I just remembered as I was thinking that, that you know, when I went to Catholic All Boys High School, there was a kid who was actually expelled for for actually peeing in a boy's locker, so they not they were not figuratively not, not like they were practically they are they they're literally peeing on the walls, <laughs> like in this weird need to act out physically. That's like it sort of precedes the narrativization of our understanding of sexuality, but yet there's like this polymorphous weirdness everywhere of like just people, uh, you know. Like, it is, it is not uncommon if you grow up in a situation where there's, like, an, an all-boys school. It's very, um, there's just lots of people who think it's funny to, like, run around in their underwear or perhaps take their genitals out in the school cafeteria now and again. Um, there's a, there's a strange, like, there's just, it's just weird. And there's this moment, um, <laughs> there's this great moment early on that just, it just felt very vivid and it communicated so much and it reminded me of being in an all-boys school. Uh, but there's this moment where, she, where, the, where Kate, the governess, goes to, well, she's not called a governess because it's 1994, but whatever. Kate, the teacher, goes to the Miles' room, it's played by Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things, and she's trying to like have a conversation with him and he's very surly to her, which teenage boys are oft likely to do, and um. But then there's just a moment where he just like goes, he walks into the bathroom and he just starts peeing without closing the door. And she has to, you know, like uncomfortably turn and look away from him. And there's just this kind of like willful kind of uh, uh, really kind of uh, cocky. That sounds like a pun. It's not. But like there's a, there's just like, a, there's just a willful, like arrogant yeah, whatever, I'm just going to pee here, and and it is inappropriate, it's physically inappropriate, it's, you should like perhaps not expose your genitals to your teacher. Um, fun fact, if, if write that down, you, you should definitely, that's a no, that's, um, that's a no on that one. Uh, but it's it's but it's also something that like a teenage boy would totally do. Like I I I don't you know I don't know if everyone has uh, the context of growing up in a an all boys Catholic high school, but people will just take their genitals out in the school cafeteria. It just happens, and you're just like and it's also tied to a weird aggressiveness. Like there's a lot of uh, uh, like I remember being in a cafeteria where where there's someone just turns around and says like. I just want to like start a fight today and you're just like holy shit not me like I'm just gonna be invisible 
I'm going to sit in the corner and I'm going to like enjoy the fact that the, you know, the cafeteria jukebox just, you know, the radio just started playing the new Britney Spears song, but I'm going to pretend like I don't care and like, I don't know what song it is. And it's going to be like, oh, is this Britney? Is it Christina? I don't know. Like, I'm just going to be invisible and like pretend I don't know and, and just be small, as small as I could humanly be. And I don't want anyone to fight me or anyone to like expose themselves at me. I just, I just want to get through the day. Um, <laughs> and I feel like I, I so related to her that moment because it's just like, Jesus Christ, put your dick away, weirdo. Yeah, it's a strangest, but I, I think it's such a great choice. And also, by the way, they recast, they recast the kiss as this thing that's like, a child who is probably maybe innocent, maybe held the kiss too long kind of thing. They recast it as like, he goes to her room at night and he touches her face and she's uncomfortable and she looks physically uncomfortable. Like, like he, sh- like he obviously shouldn't be there and she asks him to leave. Uh, and then he just sort of reaches, like leans in and, and kisses her. And, and it, and she clearly does not want it to be happening. And it is an intrusion of her privacy and her space. And, 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 it is, it just re, the, the, the danger of Miles here is just something else. It's not like the fear that a child has sexuality or knows sexuality. It's the fear of an emerging kind of predatory sexuality. Like, teenage boys, I, you know, I remember there was a supermodel, I forget her name, I feel like it was Nikki something, uh, but there's a supermodel who almost died when I was in, like, seventh grade, which is, like, 13. And I remember... Oh, I can see her face. What was her name? She's from the 90s, like, for sure. <laughs> Nikki something. Oh, I can't remember. Uh, but she almost died in, like, a, an accident. And I remember going to school the next day and people were talking about it. And one, like, one of the really jocular boys showed up and someone said, Oh, the supermodel, she almost died. And his first reaction was to say... Oh, man, I didn't get to fuck her yet. Like, first of all, 13-year-old boys, most of them, are, they're not having sex with anyone, but they, like, they're literally processing the whole world through this, like, weird nascent concept that their identity and their value is associated to some sort of, like, weird sexual dominance. But, like, no one's no one in seventh grade was having sex with anyone, but, like, this, processing the, the near-death experience of a supermodel, or a woman who happened to also be a model, like was, oh, man, I didn't get to fuck her yet. As if that was even a possibility in the universe. Like, whatever his name was. Steve, Bob, I don't remember who he was. I don't remember any of those fuckers. But, like, (laughs) it was just such a... I just... Like, as if the whole world, when you're a 13-year-old boy, is reduced to, like, what it has to do with your sense of sexual power. So the fact that Miles is a teenage boy here is, like... It's make it really transforms the whole movie. It's brilliant. I'm I and Finn Wolfhard's great in the role, and it is also. I mean, his class is a whole another issue. It's definitely part of the novel and part of the other movies. But you know, he because it's a house where there's all women, and he's the the oldest man, and he is he is the loosely the employer of the women who are essentially his staff uh you know barbara martin plays the kind of like housekeeper woman of the the grounds character in this movie whatever you want to call that uh she's great by the way that she has 
uh, you know, her whole shtick, like, her name is Mrs. Gross in this movie, uh, uh, her whole shtick is like, I'm the keeper of the house. It's my, it's, it's a great honor. I'm, I'm a servant of the upper class. I, right. And Kate, who's come in as this like educated, qualified woman who's, who's been, been asked to do a job to benefit the, the children in their education is like, what is going on? Like, this is not, <laughs> this is not real life. Like we, they're like, this is the, the, this, this is the world. You do simple tasks to get through the day, uh, but but that's not that doesn't you know that doesn't so the, the early encounter is that she asks Miles to move a plate and he basically refuses because he doesn't have to because he in his mind is paying Mrs. Gross to do that for him and in a way he is and that is an immediate catalyst of conflict where he has basically established that he does not believe that he has to be in fear or subservient to anyone he asserts that he is the most powerful person in the house because he has money and because he is a man. And that shit is fucked. And that runs throughout the whole movie because Quint, then as a character, is now not just sexuality embodied, but he's a particular abusive, dominating, uh, dangerous, violent sexuality, right? The, the relationship between Miss Jessel and Quint is not just that it was a sexual relationship, but really that it was a rape, an abusive relationship, a, a violent relationship where she didn't, she wasn't in, she wasn't consensually involved with him, but he was preying upon her, sneaking into her room. And so the fear is not of sex in a puritanical way, the fear is of malicious sexual violence, which makes the movie strongly different from the, the book and, and the other adaptations, and also gives it a really strong, really different perspective just by recasting that character as an older age and resetting some of the foundational elements that drive the narrative of the story. Okay, so what I want to do now, uh, I want to give, like, so here's, you know, so if you've seen the movie, presumably you've seen the movie if you're listening to the spoiler section. Um... I think a lot of people and a lot of reviews are very resistant to the fact that the movie increasingly kind of opens up spaces to question what is happening. Uh, by the way, I don't think this is a sudden turn at the end of the movie. I think throughout the movie there is a increasing kind of rupture or disjunctive style of editing which creates a question about where we are and what is happening. So a really kind of mid-movie or maybe kind of veering toward the end of the movie, but earlier than the ending of the movie, moment of this is where there's this sudden cut. There's like a shot of Kate looking at the fire, and then there's a really sudden hard cut to her on a horse chasing after Miles on a horse, where we haven't been sort of situated to understand how she got to the horse, why she's riding on the horse, what is happening. And it is it is jarring. We're then sort of led to feel that that's a dream. We see her seemingly wake up, and we think that that was a dream. And then we see the ghost of Miss Jessel at the end of the bed, and then that appears to be another dream that she wakes up from, and she's now seemingly awake in bed. 
but there's a couple of different layers to that. One is, of course, that the movie sets up the idea that sometimes waking up is not necessarily waking up from all the layers of the potential dreams that are happening or the different kind of versions of reality that are happening in her mind. Uh, but also this kind of disjunctive style of editing where we're kind of cutting really hard from one event to the next without a kind of clarifying, you know, smooth transition. Uh, the movie it's sort of, is always doing this, especially in the second half, in different ways, because I feel like part of the direction of the movie is that it kind of goes in, a, it moves in a way that, that distances itself more and more from a kind of linear narrative as it goes on. Uh, so that being said, a lot of people don't like that the ending is not, uh, it's not a firm, closed ending. I think, it's, I, and also I think people are sometimes predisposed to react negatively to a feeling that isn't a kind of comfortable, warm sense of finality. Uh, I think we we are, as audiences, especially audiences who watch, um, you know, mainstream Hollywood genre filmmaking, we are, and this is a very old tradition, but we are sort of like conditioned to expect something from the experience of, of watching a movie. And I feel like that is not the only experience that, that that movies can create. And I think some people really interpret the jarring feeling that they get when a movie doesn't do what they expect it to as a negative feeling. But if you could just sort of live with some of the ambiguity or just live with the fact that this feeling of uncertainty or this or like this impulse this kind of like suddenness this sort of being pulled into something and then not knowing you know exactly where it's taken you that that is also that's also something that can be really appealing i think um i think one thing that's strange and i said this a lot in the review of icu um which i compared favorably to parasite but i think it's a weird thing that happens in critical reviews that Movies that are advertised as experimental and art house that do cool left to feel things get celebrated, but genre films that do cool left to feel things get told that they don't know what they're doing, that they don't know what genre they want to be, they don't understand the rules of the genre. Just because it says a horror movie doesn't mean that that the filmmaker can't make a bold, batshit crazy choice, and that we shouldn't engage with that as what it is. So again, I mean, presumably you've seen the ending of the movie if you're listening to this, but the movie veers increasingly into a sense of confusion. And we have kind of three three t- endings, or three scenes that are the last three scenes of the movie that all direct us in, in different ways. Uh, the first is kind of like the happy ending ending, uh, you know, where we... Uh, where we see that Miles, you know, is being affected by Quint and is scared of Quint and doesn't want to be there anymore, but he's afraid to leave. And, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Gross basically is, um, you know, confesses that she knows what's happening. uh, And then the ghost of Quint pushes her down the stairs and it looks like you know they're the 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 Kate and Flora and Miles are being kind of chased out of the grounds and get off the grounds, and that seems sort of like the happiest version of ending. And then there's this great transition where the car in the uh, against the black 
darkness of the road in an overhead shot um, looking down we kind of zoom out and the car in the overhead shot becomes sort of one with an etching that was made by uh, by Kate's mother who we meet early in the movie played by Julie Richardson who is uh, who is in some sort of mental hospital or facility and who draws kind of charcoal drawings all day. Um, and so it becomes this sort of like small facet of this charcoal charcoal drawing that uh, Kate has received in the mail from her mother. Uh, and then we go through the second ending, which is a sort of sour ending, which is a kind of... Uh, uh, it is the first, what we'll, I'll call the first ending, which is that prior scene, which, by the way, really boldly extends itself past the point where you would comfortably expect a scene would nullify itself factually in terms of the record of the chronological time of the movie or the, the you know, the story of the movie. But that first one is also, I think, notably probably the ending that is closest to a version of the story where the ghosts are real. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting though, but here's what's really interesting is that I feel like it's not as sound as that even still, because there are these moments in that version of the ending where you get things like, uh, Mrs. Gross throwing open the door and seeing, uh, Kate on the floor wrestling no one, which seems to undercut her belief that there's a ghost. By not visualizing that ghost from Mrs. Gross's perspective, we get the sense that maybe only Kate sees it. And then, of course, there's the moment where Kate kind of pushes Mrs. Gross out of the way, and then we see the manifestation of Quint pushing Mrs. Gross off the stairs, but it's played in a way that leads us to believe that perhaps it's always been just Kate's own imagination, so Kate, maybe Kate is the one who pushed her off the, the, the stairs, unknowingly. Uh, so it's interesting because that ending... My, 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 my kind of innate response is that that's sort of the as if the ghosts are real ending but then there's this weird in-between moments which I, I like that it's not as simple as what I might first say which anytime I say something and then I question myself and then I double back and I need to add more I need footnotes if you need footnotes that shit is interesting like you know like if you don't if whatever, you think the movie's bad whatever, because it's because it's not com- completely clear and closed off I need footnotes to explain this shit. It's good. It's interesting. It's, it's a lot to talk about. Um, okay, so the second ending to me is way more the, she does, you know, the ghosts are not real. This is in her mind. This is, uh, you know, her imagination, her terror, her fear manifesting. Uh, and we get this because we go from that, that sort of car on the horizon to back seemingly in time to when the drawings arrive in the mail and we overhear Miles and Flora and Miles and Flora talk with Kate and Kate looks in the mirror and seems to see Quint, although we don't see Quint. And then she accuses Flora of seeing Quint and kind of lunges at her and breaks her doll. Uh, And so this ending is very much more seemingly an ending where... uh, the ghosts aren't real. We see no ghosts. The kids don't see the ghosts. The kids seem totally confused by the fact that she claims there are ghosts. Uh, and and so it's kind of counter to the first ending, which is more of how a traditional haunted house movie might end. Then we have this close-up of 
Kate's eye and we see inside her iris uh, an image of Kate sitting on the bed from Flora and Miles's family home that she sleeps in with the red bedspread inside the swimming pool where her where Kate's mother draws her charcoal drawings and Kate stands from the bed and approaches her mother and her mother turns and we don't see what Kate is seeing but we see Kate scream and then the movie ends here's 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 I'm gonna give you uh I'm gonna give you a couple of things and one of those things is going to be if you need to explain it I'll explain something that might work for you but here's here's first why I like that ending, which is that I don't really want to explain it. Um, here's here's what's brilliant about this. This is a great choice. I don't the critic reviews that say this is a bad choice, that this is that the movie's unfinished. Bullshit. Like there's so many experimental films that do not have a solid, you know, a solid ending that tells you that we don't need a newspaper clipping that tells us, that the monster is dead and the people got to the shore and all that shit, like the end of Underwater. This is an ending that is intentionally unclear in a movie that has been elliptical in its editing style, where we miss time, where we don't understand the orientation of things. Because it's a movie about the sanity of a character and questioning the internal logic of her world. To make the ending of the movie a series of plausible versions of what could or is happening to her is exciting because it does formally or cinematically what the novel does stylistically, which is it raises possibilities about the implausibility or potential imagination that her character is engaging with when she imagines or sees these ghosts. Uh, you know... I mentioned earlier that it's an it's a complex choice in adapting the story because you don't know whether to go full tilt and just show the ghosts or whether you make the character look unstable by having them, you know, point at a ghost and have the mirror be empty. And I think it is to have to cinematically create a device that represents this tension and represents this tension as kind of multiple threads of possibility, right? Like the first possibility is kind of what if it really were a ghost story? The second possibility is what if it what if it isn't? What if, it, what if it's all her imagination? And the third is kind of a giant fuck you. It's like it, you know, it's the third is like the third is is a it's almost like um and it's like a Rorschach test, right? It doesn't even give you what to see it kind of lets you see what you want to see or asks you what you see it lets you imagine what she's looking at and it kind of holds up to you the fact that ultimately the whole movie is your interpretation of what is happening if you're if you're if you've interpreted it as it's a ghost story and that first ending is what you wanted to happen no if you interpret it as a delusion and that second ending is what you wanted to happen no the third ending is this just kind of open, it it completely visually and through cinematic language asserts the impossibility of the conclusion of the movie, which is the point of the story. So the fact that it does through film technique something that 
echoes, reflects, and builds upon themes of the original novel and adapts those themes to a cinematic style. I've, I'm fully behind the ending, right? Like, the ending is not what, what bothers me about this movie. The ending is part of what I love about this movie. Uh, and I think the reviews... Oh, by the way, I read a review that said, like, the last scene of the movie is she goes to visit her mother. There's a bed in the swimming pool! <laughs> it clearly is not a realistic space, okay? Uh, I don't even have time. So that's why I love the ending, because I think it... I, in adaptation, it's interesting when films use film technique to accomplish something that is distinct to literature. So the novel has its literary ways of evoking the possibility of a double reading. This film has cinematic ways of doing it, and I kind of like that it goes full tilt and doesn't even kind of let you get away with giving doing a surface reading. It demands that you don't do a surface reading. It refuses to let you have a surface reading. If you were going to give it a surface reading, it basically denies you that possibility, which I, I, loved, I love the ballsiness of that. I don't know how the ending came together. I don't know if it's like a weird mistake. I don't know if they shot three endings and then put them all together. I don't know. Uh, there are moments in the ending where I do think there was ADR dialogue that didn't need to be there. Like there's a there's a moment there's a moment where uh, the doll breaks and then Miles says you can't fix it she's broken and then not on camera you hear Finn Wolfhard's voice say just like you. <laughs> it's just one line too far and there's a couple of moments in that particular scene where it's like there's like one extra line of dialogue too much that seems like it's post-production dialogue that's just there to to try and clarify something that is supposed to be you know metaphorical to make it very literal and obvious for audiences who would have gotten it we, we get that a, the broken doll is a metaphor i don't need a third or fourth line of clarification thank you um anyway but I think it really, it doesn't let you have either ending. And I and, and also, that's kind of always been the point of the novel. But with the novel, there's always this invitation to choose one or the other. And I think there's still an invitation to choose here, but there's not the satisfaction of believing that yours is right. Because there's, because there's ultimately so many strands and they don't resolve and you can't claim a very strong sound reading of your own because it's constantly disrupting the soundness of any one particular reading which I think is fucking good. Anyway, here's here's what I'll give you if you're someone that's like, I hate it, I don't like that you don't find out what happens, right? Or is that you? Come on in. <laughs> here's, here's if I, if you ask me to give you, use my uh, obnoxious, you know, uh, filmy brain to give you a close reading of this movie that is grounded in some kind of logical structure that would give you like a sense of what narratively happens. Uh, here's what I would say. I think you could posit a reading of this movie that argues that everything that happens happens inside Kate's brain or that everything that happens is imagination that no part of the movie is truly there. Uh, if only maybe perhaps the first scene uh, and here's why, because, uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you the detail, I'll give you all the secrets that you can use uh, at your next dinner party to, to, <laughs> to, to sell this reading to someone, if you, if you need it. Um, you know, we very specifically uh, open the movie, it's a shot of uh, 
of Flora watching Miss Jessel try to leave the estate and be stopped by Quint. Uh, which, by the way, I read reviews where people were like, we never even find out why she's afraid to leave the the premises. Isn't it because Miss Jessel, she watched Miss Jessel get, like, abducted in the driveway and Quint wouldn't let Miss Jessel leave? Isn't that, the, isn't that why she's afraid? We opened the movie watching her watch that. Uh, also, didn't their parents die in a car crash? Like, off the property? Anyway, whatever. Uh... We watch her watch Miss Jessel get abducted by Quint, and then we cut really fast, really hard smash cut to uh, and the shot of an eye, and in the iris is the hallway of the house. The, ho- the house is represented in the iris of, of an eye, and then the eye blinks, and we cut to a wider shot, and it's Kate's eye. So we're, we've seen the house in the eye, the eye's view the interior eyes view of Kate. So what if he said the house is in is in the mind of Kate, is in the eye of Kate? What if the entire movie is not about her new job, but about a character who probably has uh, a, a troubling uh, lack of grasp on reality, working through her inner demons in these the terms of this story? Here's some other things that if you want to here, here's here's some more here's some more evidence for your dinner party. Uh, the movie is strongly built around the imagery of dolls and mannequins, right? We see in lots of moments of the movie, including that shot I mentioned earlier, where we go from the doll heads to Kate to the sculpture. Kate is sort of constantly in enmeshed with the idea of dolls and mannequins. What if the whole movie is about these characters being uh, kind of play acting these particular scenarios that act out the, the the internal trauma of the main character, right? What if everyone is like a doll or a prop or a mannequin? What what if that's why the movie has such a dreamlike structure? What if there's never not a stop to the dream? What if the whole thing operates as a dream or as an internal imagination working through particular cyclical issues? Take also, take also the fact that uh, the movie is about generational issues that go down from character to character. It's about overlap between characters, right? Kate sees herself in her mother and worries she's becoming alike to her mother. We see her visit her mother early in the movie and we have a shot of her kind of pulling at her finger and then we see her later and she's she's basically like, scratch the beds of her nails raw right so we know that she has anxiety about being like her mother maybe not being mentally stable she also sees herself in flora right she sees herself in in the little girl whose father went away Uh, we know that her father left her we know that her father left we know that flora's father died we know that quint is dead and quint the fear is that quint is somehow had this influence on miles right and that Kate is perhaps seeing herself in Flora. So what if Flora and Miles are, you know, the sort of archetype of the woman in this scenario and Miles is the archetype of the man in this scenario? And what if it's always about some character, probably Kate's, uh, you know, fear of what the man has done. The man has left her. We don't know why her father left or in what terms he left. We know that her mother is not well, 
what if her father was abusive? What if her father was violent? What if Quint reminds her of her father? What if Quint reminds her of her experiences? What if the fear that Miles is like Quint is really the fear that Miles is her father or like her father? What if the fear of taking care of Flora and her dedication to Flora is really about taking care of herself or her inability to protect herself from her father? Internal character shit, right? Um, <laughs> the fact that, for example, like... It's never explained, but the kids are kind of telekinetic. Or is telekinetic the right word? What's the word for hearing thoughts? Listen, <laughs> but like Flora always knows that the you know she knows what's happening or knows that there's an apple in Kate's pocket from the beginning. Or Miles knows what's happening or seems to know what's going on in the window. Right? She seems to see Quinn to the window. That there's a sort of like psychic element that they seem to know things that are happening. But what if every everyone is everyone in the movie and it's all sort of in the mind of one particular character? I mean, what is more quintessentially 90s than the traditional Fight Club ending, which is everyone is the same character? Uh, right? It's a 90s movie. It's set in the 90s. Uh, what if, right, what if the entire movie is about... Uh, remember that movie Identity, where it's like six people at a hotel and they're all the same person? Uh, remember that? Right, like, what if, what, if, what if that is the point? The point is not that uh, whether there are ghosts or aren't ghosts, but that we're sort of always throughout the movie in this layered dream reality of some character, uh, presumably Kate, if Kate has a sort of corollary outside of this imagined space, who is grappling with this sort of cyclical pattern of women being driven mad by sexually abusive men, by coping with Miss Jessalyn Quint, by coping with Flora and Miles, and working through that crisis in a sort of cyclical pattern. If you want that shit, and that shit makes you happy, and you can embrace the movie because you say, oh, they're all, they're all one character, they're all inside her head, and, and at the end of the movie she realizes that everyone's inside her head, because maybe, maybe what she sees is that her mother's face is really her face. You can have that. I mean, that's beautiful. That's an interesting movie in and of itself. I think that the, the sort of turning its nose up at giving you that is, is fun and, and, and gives the movie more depth. But I think, I think you could take that reading and run with it. And I think if it really makes you unhappy that you don't have an explanation... That that is an explanation. I think there is filmic evidence. There is there is a lot of uh, material in in the film that you could use to justify that reading. And I think if that makes you happy, and you feel like you got more value out of the movie by putting it in those terms, go, go for it. Uh, but I think still, regardless, <laughs> this is a really interesting movie. It's an interesting take on the story. It does things to the story that make it really strong. Uh, I love the the change in Miles. I love the change in the backstory, and I love the un unconcluded ending. I love that the ending is an admonishment of closure and an admonishment of the audience for trying to figure it out or solve it or put it together neatly. The premise of the movie is that nothing is neat, and no, right, like these things have never been solved, and they just keep happening. Uh, and regardless of whether it's a ghost or not a ghost or whatever, but it is, it is a movie about the sort of like passed down generation to generation, uh, violence that is cyclically happening that needs to be stopped. I think focus on that, focus on what the movie is about, focus on the really great parts of the movie. 
I really liked this movie. I saw it twice. I watched. I went and saw it once, and I have an AMC A-list pass, and I can see three movies a week, and I was like, I'm going to... I want to see that again because I feel like I approached it with such a sense of uh, expectation that was different than what I got, and I want to kind of rewatch it on its terms. So I saw it twice, and I liked it later the second time. I liked it both times, but I liked it even better the second time. There's a lot to look for. There's a lot to get out of the movie. So if you were skeptical of the movie maybe give the movie a second chance and think about some of the things that I just said in this in this uh, too long episode of this podcast. All right, if you made it to the end of this, thank you so much for listening. That's very kind of you. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can email me at gayforhorror at gmail.com. Uh, and I do say this every time, and I must tell you, if you, if you made it to the end of this, uh, it, it is totally true. Uh, we, we do recruit, and it is contagious. So you're totally gay now. Bye!